Welcome to Continued, part of the teaching ministry here at Third Baptist Church. My name is Keith. I'm one of the pastors here, and our aim in this time is to dig deeper from the sermon on Sunday morning, digging deeper into the text, uh, into exegetical issues, historical issues, contextual issues, whatever issues come up that we feel ought to be chased down a little bit further. My name is Adam. I'm also one of the pastors, and Keith and I are going to be having this conversation. So, welcome to Continued. The church did not make the Bible. The church recognized the Bible and then just put it all together. Around 350 is when Athanasius wrote a letter. He's a church father, and it's the first instance where all 27 books of the New Testament are listed out together as a cohesive unit. He was putting that to his people, like, these are the books that we trust. Welcome to Continued Today. We are excited to dive into a topic that I'm personally passionate about, and Keith, you did a great job in the the Sunday morning sermon opening up to our church the passage in Acts chapter 2. Let's talk more about that today and and see how that intersects with our lives. Now, 2,000 plus years later, how are the apostles teaching? How is the New Testament still that source of community for us today? Yeah, well, you know, it's it's interesting. you know, Acts two forty two says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and everything else in that passage that that rounds out chapter two is 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 underneath that umbrella. You know, they and they and they devoted themselves to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. They were you know they were giving uh, you know sell, you know selling fields and and uh, selling possessions and and giving to each other. Well, why were they doing that? Well, it's because you know, like we talked about on Sunday morning, there was there were you know thousands of displaced uh, new believers, and um, and they were making provision so that they could stay longer. For what reason? So that they could continue to hear uh, the apostles' teaching. These would have been those uh, recipients of Peter's sermon at Pentecost, the ones that were crying out, "What do we do?" And they were saved and baptized, and they probably just hung around right there in Jerusalem, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. More than likely, they stayed there to learn, to grow, yeah. and and it was the church that developed in that yeah. moment. That's right. That's right. This this newborn uh, church in the infancy stage was what? They were committed to the apostles' teaching. And then, so, you know, you think about the history of the church. One of the statements I made uh, on Sunday morning was that God's people have always been people of God's word. And so, you know, 2,000 years, here we are, you know, at Third Baptist Church, and we're doing the same thing. That's why we do expository preaching. You know, Adam, that's why that's why you do it with your students, and on Sunday morning, that's why I do it on Sunday mornings, um, is, is because we are, um, our aim is to expose God's word to God's people. Um, and, and it's not, it's not just, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's my thing. That's my style. No, it's, it's a, it's a commitment. It's a conviction that we have, um, to the word of God. You know, I think church members might hear us say that phrase a lot, expository preaching. Can you define that real quick? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that, Adam. Um, you know, a lot of times I think that, 
uh, for those of us who grew up in the church, uh, we, you know, if you were to ask them the question, why, why do you sit and listen to a guy talk for 35 minutes? Well, it's just kind of what we've always done. You know, why, why, do, we, why do we do this in, in corporate worship? Well, and why, why are we committed to expository preaching? The most simple way I can um, define expository preaching is simply we're exposing God's Word. Picture something buried a treasure buried underneath the ground and you're and you're and you're digging you're digging you're digging you keep digging until you get that treasure uh, from you know God's word we're going to talk about this was 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 written you know 2000 years ago the new testament was written 2000 years ago 2000 years of 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 culture has passed of time has passed um, so what we're trying to do is we're we're trying to uncover the 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 meaning um, of, of the text. And, what, and we believe that what it meant then, it means today, but it has obviously you know, different application for us. So we're trying to take God's word and we're trying to expose its true meaning uh, to, to, the, to God's people. And in classic categories, expository preaching, you have three categories. You have, you have explanation, uh, which is you're explaining the text. You're explaining what's going on. You're explaining, you know, the context. You're explaining the audience. You're explaining the author, the text itself. You know, um, grammatical issues come into play here. You're explaining the text. Then you're uh, illustrating the text. What's unclear, you illustrate to make clear. Uh, and then, and then, lastly, you're applying the text. So those are the three categories of expository preaching. You're explaining, you're illustrating, and you're applying this text to a modern audience. Yeah, I've heard also the words exegesis mm-hmm. as opposed to eisegesis, and so exegesis connected to the expository preaching. We are we're uncovering what is already there. Right. We're we're digging in to find what it truly says and what it truly means. And, and the letters e x x right. That's exactly. Important. It's 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 this, it's this idea of drawing mm-hmm. out. You're drawing out. So exegesis, you're drawing out. I mean, yeah. expository, you're you're drawing out, and then a, you know as applying. opposed to eisegesis, which is kind of what we are reading into or what we are putting into uh, an application or a an understanding that we would lay over the text. We don't want to ever preach or teach in that manner. We don't want to read the text and then make it conform to what we think. That's eisegete. Right. Rather, we want to exegete the text by reading the text, taking the meaning, and making the meaning conform us. Yeah. And ultimately, why do we do that, Adam? It's, it's because God's Word is the authority. We're not the authority. We're not reading the Bible in an anthropocentric way, in other a man-centered way. We're not, we're not reading the text um, with, with, with man in mind, with me in mind. You know, you're reading it, and you're, 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 you're subjecting yourself to it and asking the question, what is God saying here? And, and, that, and that, is, um, that, that, that is infinitely more powerful than reading yourself into the text. Yes. What, what does God say? That's yeah. true application. You're right. One thing in churches today, I feel like we, we've done a poor job of knowing our own history. Uh, we haven't taught well what happened after the New Testament was done being written. What happened after that? How did the New Testament become recognized by the church as God's divinely inspired written word to us? 
That's that's a good question, Adam, and I and I think it's I think this is you know a, a general knowledge of of how the New Testament was compiled. I think that maybe that's a good word we can use is compiled. I um, like the word recognize. Re- yes, yes, yeah. recognize how the New Testament was recognized and put together as God's word under the under the new covenant. I think that's in, it's important for us to to know. Um, interestingly, when Paul or Peter um, refers to the Word of God, the, the Greek word they use is graphe. I mentioned this briefly on Sunday morning. Graphe. We, 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 um, we, we translate that as scriptures. What are they talking about when they say the scriptures? Thus it is written in the scriptures, in the graphe. Well, the scriptures for them were, was the Old Testament. Uh, it, it was it was the, the 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 old covenant scriptures. It was it was Genesis through Malachi in our Bibles. And what they're doing is they're they're teaching uh, the Old Testament scriptures with the lens of Christ. And so, you know, just like Peter did in Acts chapter two, he's 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 taking he's taking Joel chapter two. He's taking Psalm one ten. He's saying David said here. Oh, and these guys are talking about Christ, you know, and he came, and, and you can believe in him. So that's, that's what they're doing. Um, interestingly, though, as we know, um, you know, Paul, Peter, John, of course, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John um, were writing uh, a, a synopsis of Jesus' life, the Gospels, you know, the, the, the evangelists who they were, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, begin to be circulated among this young and early church. Paul is writing letters to these churches. Peter's writing letters. John's and, writing letters. And Paul intentionally says, read this among the brothers. Yes. He says, it, pass it cir- around. Yeah, circulate yeah. this to the other churches as well. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think it's important for us to understand uh, that the New Testament didn't just poof, you know, it appeared. All of a sudden, you know, it's in the back of the scroll. <laughs> you know, all yeah. of a sudden it's in the back of the Bibles. No, there was there was a process and 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 it was a it was a sifting process, you know. Just just imagine imagine this. Uh, you know, you 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 get a you get a bucket and you get a um, a bunch of sand in this this sieve, and you begin to to shake it to to get the jewels out. Right. That's essentially what the early church was doing in order to find uh, which texts were divinely inspired, because Paul wrote a lot of letters. Peter probably wrote a lot of letters, but there were only a select few that were divinely inspired. And so it's important for us to understand that the, the early church wasn't just sort of, you know, picking and choosing to advance their agenda. What they were doing was they, were, they, they understood that God has given us new revelation, and, and he's given it by these criteria. We'll, we'll, we'll walk through these by, by these men, these apostles. Um, we, we need to, under the, under the power and the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, understand and figure out which one of these letters um, are divinely inspired, are breathed out by God, theopneustos, breathed out by God. A real clear example of what, what you're talking about is Paul writing to the Corinthians. So he's, we hear the one side of the correspondence, Paul's letters, you know, we have 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, but then they are responding back to him in some manner. And then in his letter, he even references a previous letter that I wrote to you, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. It says, I wrote to you in my other letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And so he's saying, 
very clearly in that other letter that I wrote to you, I, I mentioned these principles that we're going to bring back up here. Well, this is 1 Corinthians that he wrote that. So there is a letter predating 1 Corinthians, which we do not have as a divinely inspired text, but Paul wrote it. And, and also later in 1 Corinthians, he, or actually it's in 2 Corinthians, he mentions a severe letter. And some scholars say that could be part of 1 Corinthians, but it could be, and I, I kind of tend to believe, a letter in between 1 and 2 Corinthians where he really lays the hammer down on some specific folks, so much so that in 2 Corinthians you kind of get this, this like, oh man, yeah. a, a tender, it's more tender because there was a severe letter that came before that. Yeah, that's right. So what happened? What happened with those maybe four letters to the Corinthian church? Well, again, and we want to be clear about this, under the direction and the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, the early church um, sifted to find out, to, to see which jewels would be left. And, and they did that um, under a fourfold uh, criteria. I want to walk through these just briefly and, and, and try to explain them you know, as well as we can. Um, if, as they're looking at these 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 letters, you know these gospels that are written, what are the what are the characteristics? Um, what's the criteria for those that they would understand to be divinely inspired? The first one would be apostolicity. Hmm, uh, that's, that's, a, that's a mouthful there. <laughs> very seminary <laughs> word here. Um, basically, um, uh, through through or by means of an apostle, connected to Con- the connected, apostle, connected to an apostle, either written by an apostle himself. So we have that, you know, we have Matthew, um, we have uh, John, and of course you've got, you've got Paul, who was the 13th apostle, you've got Peter, you've got John writing New Testament scripture. Um, but it, not necessarily only an apostle, though. One also closely connected to an apostle. This is apostolicity, closely connected to apostle. Who would be in that category? It would be Mark. Mark was a disciple of, of Peter, very close to Peter. This would be Luke. Very close to Paul. He's traveling around with Paul in He's the book of Acts. Probably He's the closest, maybe other than Timothy, the, the closest other you know, man, closest friend uh, to the Apostle Paul. Um, then you've got you got James. You've got, you got James, who, who was, you know, he was close to the apostles. He's also Jesus' brother. Yeah, and um, a leader in the Jerusalem church yeah, right after yeah. the resurrection. Same and with ascension. Jude. Jude mm-hmm. and, and Jude was recognized towards the very end. You know, they, they didn't immediately recognize Jude, but obviously, you know, under God's sovereignty, Jude is recognized as Scripture. Yeah, Jude is in the same way connected as James is. The one enigma is the book of Hebrews, and we're not going to spend this podcast to, to dive into that, but that is a New Testament book that we are unsure of the authorship. It's not clearly specified in the book. Some people say it's Paul. Some people want to say it's Barnabas or Apollos or you've got other options, but all these options are connected to the apostolic ministry yeah. um, through teaching, through proximity, right. um, and and even more clearly in the book of Hebrews is the message is consistent with the apostolic teaching. Yes, which would go, which would lead us into the second category. So four, fourfold. First, apostolicity. Second is orthodoxy. You know, again, the early church is sifting and they're looking at letters written by the apostles or close confidants, and they're, and, they're, and they're seeing if it lines up with, with the apostles' teaching, right? If it's orthodox, if it, if, it, if it proclaims this gospel that was once delivered to all the saints. Yeah. So there's a phrase called the rule of faith. Yes, the rule can, of faith. can you give us a little more information on that? 
Well, it's essentially the apostles' teaching, the rule of faith. It was, it was this understanding of all the early churches that are underneath the authority of God's Word, underneath the authority of the apostles' teaching, that, that, that submitted a regulatory teaching. You know, the doctrines would be, would be formulated later as far as, you know, Christology and, and pneumatology, but, but, you know, sort of a primordial understanding of Christology. God is, is Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God's, God's work in salvation, um, you know, Jesus, Jesus bloodshed for the sins of the world. We're talking about the first tier issues. Yeah, first tier the issues. The rule of faith is is the overarching umbrella that that covers everything else. That's right. That's right. So you you've got apostolicity, orthodoxy, and and thirdly, you've got antiquity. Um, this is the third third of the of the four. So what does that mean? It means that. Uh, they're not going to understand Scripture being written outside of the of the the era of the apostles, which is why so many quote unquote gospels have been rejected. You know, yes. first one that comes to mind, Gospel of Thomas, was written you know a couple of centuries later. No, the canon the canon was closed in A.D. ninety. You know, when when John wrote Revelation. Um, so, you know, when they're looking at all these texts, okay, okay, they have to be this, have to be this, have to be written in the era of the, of the apostles. And last would be uh, ecclesiastical usage. That's, a, that's, a, that's a, a big phrase. simply means, did the church use it? <laughs> that's what it means. The practical yeah. application of these texts to yeah. real life. So they're not, they're not gonna, going to consider, was this divinely inspired if, the, if it hasn't even been circulated? If, it's, if it was written and it's been set to the side and maybe one church read it, but they didn't feel the need to pass it on. It wasn't as useful. Well, so, yeah, yeah, it wasn't seen as useful. But, it, but if, there's, if there's a letter or if there's a gospel that has been circulated and circulated and circulated, they're, they're, that, that's, that's a criteria that they're going to look at. Because they're recognizing that the Spirit uses this to transform lives. Yeah, that's right. And, he, and, he's, and he's doing it already. He's been doing it. Yeah. So th- those are the four main... Um, uh, tent poles of of how the church understood. Okay, we we're just we're we're not picking and choosing. We're sitting back and we're recognizing these these texts that are divinely inspired texts so, that are breathed out by God. Exactly. The church did not make the Bible. The That's church right. recognized exactly. the Bible and then just put it all together. I think it was in uh, around three fifty is when Athanasius wrote. Uh, a letter. He's a church father, and uh, he wrote a letter, and it's the first instance where all 27 books of the New Testament are listed out together as a cohesive unit. And so, and he he was just saying, he was putting that to his people, like, these are the books that we trust. And that was the first time all of the ones that we are still using now, 2,000 years into into this, we're still using these. I mean, you think about 350. That is so early. It is still it's, close it's, to the and, events. And, and Codex Sinaiticus. We're going to scare some people off know, with this yeah. podcast. So, the, the earliest we have of the entire New Testament in, in Latin, the entire mm-hmm, yeah. New Testament, te- it's called Codex Sinaiticus, if anybody wants to look that up. The entirety of the New Testament was was written from start to finish in 350. That's so early. It's so much earlier than than some you know contemporary scholars want to submit. And by the way, when the Gospels were written, you know, AD, AD 50, 55, 60, 65, they immediately started be, started being um, um, rotated among the churches together. You know, this this threefold and then bound John writes together. bound together. 
And then, you know, the Pauline corpus, Paul, all of Paul's letters, they were together and they were circulating by the end of the first century. Yeah, they, they already started to make a unit out of these things, yeah. recognizing the unique place that they held in the life of the church. Exactly. And they would bind them together, they would put them together and circulate. Yeah, here's an interesting question. Did the apostles understand that they were writing scripture? You know, this, this can be debated, this is debated. I think, I don't know what you think, Adam. <laughs> I think that they understood that, you know, not everything that's coming from their pen, they knew who they were, they knew they weren't God. But I think they understood themselves to be, to be recording new revelation and they understood that they were writing scripture. I think they even more clearly understood that in their peers, maybe even more so than what they physically were writing, because we see that in the way Peter talks about Paul. Exactly. Um, and so he's, he's much quicker to say that about Paul's writings than he is about his own. Yeah. yeah. Are you thinking of the same text I'm thinking of? I am. I Go am. Ahead. Second Peter chapter 3. That's, that's yes. exactly right. L- l- listen to these words. Second Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 14. This is the apostle Peter. Um, who, who obviously at this time both he and Paul are, are still alive. They're still engaged in ministry. This is towards the end of their lives. Listen to what he says. Therefore, dear friends, while you wait for these things, make every effort to be found without spot or blemish in his sight at peace. Also, regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our dear brother Paul has written to you according to the wisdom given to him. He speaks about these things in all his letters. <laughs> Listen to this. This helps us, right? This, this, this makes me feel better as a, as a teacher of God's Word. He says, there are some matters that are hard to understand. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> Thank sort of thing. you. Yeah. So even Peter has a hard time exegeting uh, the book of Romans. But listen to this. There there are some things that are hard to understand. The untaught and unstable will twist them to their own destruction as they also do with what? With the rest of the scriptures. With the rest of the graphe. The same word he uses for the Old Testament scriptures. He's describing Paul's writings with the same exact word that he describes the Old Testament. That's right. So he's putting them on the same level same level that these are both divinely inspired writings. Same level. Yes. So he understood, and and they were sort of expecting that, uh, you know, this is the new covenant. This is Jeremiah 31, you know, uh, you know, Isaiah chapter 2, the Messiah has come. This is, this is you know, God has ushered in the end times, the new covenant, the, 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 the age of the Messiah. Um, so there was an expectation that God is giving new revelation, and that he did. And the early church recognized it. Yeah. So let's bring this back to Acts chapter 2. And the church is just beginning, and we see some real principles in what the church is doing. They are devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Um, how do we need to continue to do this? Why do we need to continue to do this to, uh, to build that foundation? Because the, the Word of God is, is our authority. Uh, yes. the, 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 the Word of God is what we stand upon. Um, it, it, it is what binds us together. Um, it's, it's what we're ultimately accountable to. You know, this, this goes to several aspects in our theology of the, of the doctrine of Scripture. We believe that it's sufficient. You know, we believe 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, uh, which was read on Sunday morning, that all Scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable. Uh, it's profitable for, for, for correction, for rebuking, for training in righteousness, uh, so that the man and woman of God may be equipped for every good work. Um, so, so it's 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 profitable uh, for us to live godly lives, but it also binds us together. You know, but but ultimately, what it's doing, you know, interestingly, it's not just profitable so we can live lives um, that honor God. It is 
the revelation of God. It is God's word to us. You use that word in the sermon, theopneustos, God breathed. Just that God spoke these things out through men for us, for us. It, this is profitable for us. We need this. Yes, we do. And, and here's, here's an, a point at where I think all of us are or will be convicted. Does our theology match our practice? We say, we proclaim, we herald that, that this word of God that we hold in our hands is just that. It is the word of God. It is God-breathed. But do we treat it that way? Do, do, do we treat this Bible as the very words of the eternal God that we have in our hands? You look how Jesus describes the kingdom of God and the words of God like treasure. You know, it is, yeah. it is something more precious than anything else this world has to offer. We have God's revelation here right in front of us. And yet, for most people, it's collecting dust on a bookshelf. That's right. That's and that right. is sad. The, the early church in Acts 2 they dust they dusted it off yeah they were devoting themselves to god's word mm-hmm. and and the closer they got to god's word the closer they got to each other as as if you could imagine a triangle and you put god's word at the top as we climb both sides of the triangle as we're getting closer to god's word we're also drawing closer to each other because we have a common reference point we have that common authority that the more we know god uh, our unity is going to be wrapped up in who he is that's right that's right. And this, so this is an important conversation for us to have as, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, we, we, we don't have issues. You know, we, 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 trust, we, we trust God's word. We, 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 we have faith in God and that he's revealed his word and it is, it, is, it is perfect, it is good, it is sufficient for us. But from, from an, an apologetic standpoint, from a defending the faith standpoint, it's also important to us to know these things. Like, we, we, we don't have trust issues, but it's important for us to understand how it was put together. To look at the evidence. Yeah, look at the evidence. To see the timeline, the history. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah, to know the history, to, yeah. know, to know, you know, our, our spiritual forefathers, what, what happened and, and how the New Testament was discovered, really, and, and put together. And also, this is just reality. The Word of God is under assault every day. You don't have to go to a college campus, which if you do, you know, that was big talk, you know, in, in North Carolina and in, uh, in, in Wake Forest. Where, where, where Heather and I and, and our kids lived, uh, going to seminary, down the street was UNC. And, the, and there's a famous former Christian named Bart Ehrman who, who spent his entire career is given to this. How can I, what, what can I do to convince freshmen that what they've believed their whole life is actually not true? Did you know this about the scriptures? Did you know this about what you call the scriptures? It's his goal. But listen, you don't have to go to UNC to find you know, attacks on Scripture, on the, on, the, on, the, on the authority of it, on the veracity of it. It's, it's happening every day. You're right. It, which is ironic because regarding the New Testament, this document is humanity's most reliable example of ancient writing. Yeah. By far, it is, it is a manuscript that is documented and redocumented, and compared to other pieces of ancient literature, they don't even hold a candle to what the New Testament has. You know, we could uh, read in high school or in college some of Plato's Republic. Um, Plato's Republic was written around 380 B.C., but we don't have any copies of it until 900 A.D. 
So it's over a thousand year yeah. gap right. from the original writing to the manuscript evidence that comes after it. Yeah. And and how many manuscripts do you think we have of Republic from Plato? Do you, you know? I don't know. You don't know? Hmm. We have seven. Seven. Okay. We have seven <laughs> original manuscripts of Plato's Republic. But uh, you compare that to the New Testament, there's only about maybe a 50 year gap between the events that they're recording and the, the writings and the manuscript. And... Do you know how many manuscripts we have of the New Testament? How many full manuscripts or, or, or attestations or witnesses? Yeah, yeah. 25,000? It's, it's something like that, yes. It's, it's in the tw- it's, it's, it's thousands and thousands. It is. Um, I think if, if we're talking about full manuscripts, we've got over 5,000. Okay, full manuscripts, yeah. yes. yes. So, so over 5,000 full manuscripts yeah. written within a 50 to 100-year connection to the original events. Yeah. That is, you know, compared thousands of years and seven copies to 50 years and 5,000 copies. The manuscript evidence alone shows that the New Testament is the most accurate document that we have in human history. And and, and think back to high school or or your middle school class, high school class. Is your teacher, let's talk, you know, the Odyssey by Mm -hmm. Homer. Is your teacher handing you the Odyssey? And saying, "Hey, here's Homer's Odyssey. It's we really don't know how much of it is actually Homer's. You know, we you know that it, it, we're, yeah. we're thinking, we're hoping about fifty five percent of it is actually what he wrote. The other part of it, you know, could have been added later. Um, but this is kind of his Odyssey. Yeah, no, <laughs> no we never said, hear said, that. This is Homer's Odyssey. Exactly. But, but the New Testament has been." under the most intense scrutiny of any of these ancient tests, and it has always stood the test of time. It has. Always always stood the test. One critique people will say is, through so much manuscripting and copying, don't you have errors that will creep in, and then those errors get copied, and more and more errors. So how do we answer that? You know, one, one way that I've looked at it is the transmission of the Bible is not like the game Telephone. You know, if, if you remember when you were a kid, sit around in a circle and you whisper something in one person's ear and then they whisper it to another and they whisper it to another and by the time you get around the circle, what? The message is totally changed, right? Well, that is not how the Bible was communicated. The Bible was not whispered to one person, but the apostles wrote it to many people. They said, circulate this. They, they wrote it to many people and then those many people manuscripted it Again, so it's not just one person whispering to one person to one person. Yes, you do have errors creep in with that method, but you have meticulous copying going to multiples and then those multiples checking each other and then going to the next level of copying. There can always be checking each step of the way for accuracy. And, and there are some manuscript variances. We, we need to acknowledge that as Christians, but they are they're like with a letter here yeah. or a, a comma there. Yeah, you know, that's, that's, that's right. I, I'm glad you brought that up. And, and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll close you know, with, with these stats. So when, I don't want to stat people, our folks to death. But you, know, you were talking about you know, the, 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 how, how, we, you know, how, it was, how it was transmitted over the years. And there are some, some errors. There's, there's some variance. So 94% of all, all of the manuscripts ever recovered, 94%, say the exact same thing, the whole thing. And that in itself is incredible. It's incredible, 94%. Just humanly speaking. Yes, of that remain, remaining 6%, 3% of the, 
of those variants are, are, are hardly argued that, that they were in the original. It, it's almost obvious that, that, they, that they weren't. You know, we could, we could talk about a few of those. Some of those still appear, most of the time they're going to be in double brackets in our Bibles. That, yeah, scholars are going to be, yeah, I'm going to be 90% sure that this wasn't in the original. The other remaining 3% is just as, as you mentioned, have no theological impact. Here's an example of that 3% of, of the variants, you know, that, 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 you know, liberal scholarship wants to say, how can we trust the Bible? Here's an example of it. In Romans 10, verse 17, Paul says this, so faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the message about Christ. That's what Paul says. Other manuscripts say this, so faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the message about God. That, that, this, this right here, Romans 10, 17, is the, is the most significant of, the, of, of that 3% of, of, of the variants. Which one did Paul say? Well, most believe he said message about Christ. So, some, some, of the late, some of the later manuscripts say message about God. Here's my question. Does that make any theological difference? It, 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 makes, it makes zero difference. Is, is this the message from Christ or is this the message from God? Yes. <laughs> yes, it yes is. to both. So, 94% exact same. Three per, the remaining 3% of the six are not, even, are not even debated. The remaining 3% have no theological or doctrinal or, or really even textual significance. It's, it may, may be a textual variant, but it, but it has no impact on our faith. So what we have in our hands today uh, our, our Bibles that that were you know that were that were published you know maybe in the past year that are they're just brand new out of the box. What do we have? We have a New Testament that we can be assured of um, that this is God's word. This is not an academic conversation. The academics gird up what we already know. We have faith that God has given us His word and it's perfect for us. divine providence in in bringing God's word to us through the churches through the church fathers to us today accurately we have a hundred percent confidence in who God is and how he works it's not that we have 94% or 99% confidence in God we have 100% confidence that God has said what he wanted to say to us and it's complete